your copy of God's Word with you this morning. Open to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to begin this morning in our study of the greatest sermon ever preached, known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's been articulated, articulated by many that the length of this sermon as Matthew has recorded it here, was probably not the length of the entirety of it, but Matthew and some of the other gospel writers put down as the Spirit led them portions of this sermon that um, were intended to be recorded for all time. Um, and it's also worth note, uh, pointing out that this title that we refer to affectionately as the Sermon on the Mount wasn't always called thus. It was in the 300s when Augustine gave it this name, Sermon on the Mount, and that obviously stuck. And so we still refer to it as such. We don't see anything within the Scriptures that would indicate that this needs to be titled as such, other than the fact that Jesus went up on a mountain. But I guess in that sense, we should call it the Sermon on the Mountain. Um, and it's often all debated as well, um, you know, exactly whom or whom is this sermon applicable for? Who was the intended audience for said sermon? Was it just for the Jews only? Was it for Gentiles also? And perhaps the church, was, is, this, is there application within this for the church? Or is this simply um, a vignette from the king himself on what life will be like in the kingdom when he establishes kingdom. After all, John the Baptist came preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He believed the establishment of that kingdom was about to commence. Even questioned at one point, his disciples asked Jesus, are you the one or should we be looking for someone else? And then Jesus in his ministry, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So is this... Uh, sermon and the material within this sermon intended for what kingdom life will be like and what it will look like living in the kingdom and the requirements for living within the kingdom? And if so, does that exclude the church age, which, as we know from the epistles, was a mystery from that standpoint? I really like what the author, author Pink, uh, had to say with regard to this issue, and he said, he said, there's been considerable difference of opinion concerning the ones to whom this sermon really applies. The saved or the unsaved. Extreme positions have been taken on both sides with a good deal of unnecessary dogmatism. The older we grow, the less do we approve of drawing hard and fast lines through the Scriptures, limiting their application by insisting that certain parts belong only to such and such a class and under the guise of rightly dividing the word, apportioning segments of it to the Jews only, the Gentiles only, or the church of God only. Man makes his channels rigidly straight, but God's rivers wind in and out. Pink is saying rightfully so that Jesus' teaching in this great sermon has application for all people of all time, especially those who desire entrance into Christ's kingdom, because that was the message that was being preached after all. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, and thus you need to repent for entrance into this kingdom. And so it seems that Jesus' teaching here, what it does for us, is that it gives us some color commentary on this idea of repentance. What does it look like to repent? What does repentance, what are the contours of that? It, it, and it keeps us from, under, from an understanding of repentance that's so limited by our own ideas of what it means to turn away from sin and to live for Christ. The Sermon on the Mount helps us flesh out our idea of repentance that's in accordance with God's Word. And in so doing... It helps make the Word of God a mirror into which we look, and as we look into the mirror of Scripture with regard to what does repentance look like, we can go precisely to the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the very first sermon that Matthew records for us with regard to Jesus' teaching and preaching is this beautiful sermon. So somehow repentance and the information that's 
clearly articulated by Jesus in this sermon have something to do one with the other. Because if our individual idea of what repentance was, or perhaps is, is to stand in contrast to what the Word of God says that repentance is and what it looks like, we need to know that, don't we? We need to have an understanding. If our understanding and our concept of what it means to repent is in alignment with what the Scriptures might say repentance looks like. Because if there's a difference between the two, where does the alignment need to take place? The Scriptures with our ideals or our ideals with the Scriptures? Well, obviously, we need to trim ourselves back to the Scriptures. And to any degree that we have a wrong understanding of what genuine repentance looks like in the life of the believer, we need to go to the Word of God. It's the mirror in which we see And it seems that the Sermon on the Mount is a great mirror into which we can see what genuine repentance looks like in the life of those desiring to be with King Jesus forever and ever in His glorious, eternal kingdom. Isn't that good news? It's called the gospel. You might think of this sermon here as something perhaps titled, The Gospel According to Jesus. What does it look like to get entrance into King Jesus' eternal kingdom? As a matter of fact, when we get to the end of this great sermon, even Jesus himself puts emphasis on the importance of this reality. Notice what he says. This, I'm going to jump you here all the way over to the end in Matthew chapter 7, 21 and 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, this eternal kingdom that he's going to establish, Not everybody's going to enter into this kingdom. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter this kingdom, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And the Sermon on the Mount gives us a pretty good indication of what it looks like to do the will of the Father. And so in verse 22, it says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So clearly such individuals were exercising some form of repentance that perhaps was in accordance with their own idea of what repentance perhaps looked like, what they deemed appropriate according to their own standards that they had somehow calculated. And it seems that they actually believe themselves to be saved. They even referred to Jesus correctly. They called Him Lord, saying, Lord, Lord. But immediately after such declarations, Jesus shows that the confession of the lips is of no significance when the confession doesn't actually match what genuine repentance looks like. If... Genuine repentance doesn't actually change the life and there's no bearing of fruit in keeping with repentance, causing said individuals to desire to do the will of God the Father and that from the heart. They may be confessional, Lord, Lord. But at the end, he's going to say, I never knew you. Your life is one of a practitioner of lawlessness. You continued living the exact same way you lived, even though you said the right words. You said, repent, you prayed, you did the things, but it never truly reached your heart. And so we need to understand if our understanding of repentance, of entrance into this kingdom of heaven, is clearly and precisely what the Lord Himself as he gives color commentary on what that looks like, looks like. Important, yes. Applicable for the life today, for believers within the church today, for people of all time? Absolutely. Because we're dealing here with the very essence of how one has entrance into the very kingdom of heaven. And it seems that the entirety of Jesus' sermon here is aimed at showing us what genuine saving faith and thus entrance into his kingdom will look like in the life of the true child of God. 
Again, I, I like the thought that this sermon is a good reflection of the gospel according to Jesus and that it was Jesus himself preaching, Jesus himself articulating what repentance perhaps need look like in the life of one claiming to know him. And as we will see at the very beginning of this sermon, the first 11 verses of chapter 5, uh, far from being the, the cosmic killjoy that unbelievers and the unbelieving world perceives the gospel and the word of God to be. Now, again, I don't know about you, but, I, but whenever I was young and I was sitting in the balcony of the First Baptist Church, I couldn't help but always think that, man, if I actually were to decide to live like this, my life was over. I mean, absolutely over. The life that I was desiring was absolutely over, and it would be some kind of a cosmic killjoy, and um, I would just have to be, you know, a certain kind of individual the rest of my days, and what a boring life I would lead. But quite to the contrary, Jesus is showing the complete opposite of that in these Beatitudes where we see how God desires to save people from a tragic lostness that they weren't even able to perceive in and of themselves. So in my thinking that way, I was thinking thus wrongly, right? And why do we, and why do we think wrongly? Why do unbelievers, like I was at that time in my life, why do we think wrongly? Well, it's because the, the spiritual eyes of our heart are blinded. We can't see truth. We perceive what we want to perceive, and what we perceive from our fallen nature is that this isn't going to make us happy, and other things will. Anything but this is going to make us happy. And the Word of God is saying, you want to be blessed? You want to be blessed, happy? A, a contentment that nothing can take away ever? It's in Jesus, through genuine repentance. And you can't perceive that until the miracle of saving faith, that which God does in the heart, takes place. The miracle of saving faith is the gospel of God. He opens spiritually blind eyes to see and then empowers us through His Spirit that He graciously and lovingly places within us actually a desire from the heart to want to do what? To obey God. To be obedient to God from the heart. To do His will, to do His Word, to walk, to walk in His ways. And then all of a sudden, what do we see, church? We actually see that we are the most blessed humans on planet earth. That the children of God, those whom God calls to Himself and gives spiritually the, the spiritual eyes to see the beauty of Christ and we repent and we turn and we follow Jesus, that we are the most privileged human beings who have ever walked on planet earth, ever. We've been seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And as such, we have perspective. And we can see that the temporal circumstances of our life in the here and now, though maybe not as convenient as we would like for them to be, or as lush as we would like for them to be, or as wealthy or healthy, or whatever it may be that we would like them to be, pale in comparison to what is ours truly in the beloved. And so our spiritual eyes are always focused on that biblical reality, that eternal reality of the coming of the kingdom of heaven the second time, to truly be established wherein we will live with the King forever and ever and ever. Such is the good news of the gospel. And as was mentioned last week, knowing that Jesus went to the Jew first, right? And then also to the Greek, that theme that we looked at last week, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. We see in this sermon of his here early, at the beginning of his public ministry, a very direct rebuke to the Pharisaical religion of the day. Whereas the Pharisees are known for their spiritual pride and arrogance and self-righteousness and um, their showy religious works, Jesus shows how God prefers humility 
repentance, meekness, a hunger and thirst for righteousness, true mercy and purity. Which is why Jesus said things like this in Matthew chapter 5, here in the sermon, verse 20, we will get there. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, when you stop at first first blush and think about that, the righteousness that the Pharisees demonstrated was a very rigid, legalistic righteousness. They tried to do everything perfectly. The outside of the cup was always shiny and bright and white. But on the inside, he says, you're full of dead men's bones. So if it didn't surpass what you saw the Pharisees doing, and you might perhaps think, well, I can't be better than the Pharisees. Those teetotalers, I, I can't. But there's something obviously in this. Jesus is letting us know that clearly there's a deficiency in the Pharisees' understanding and practice of the law of God. And they still had need for genuine repentance as John the Baptist came to them out in the wilderness. And they were coming to John for a baptism of repentance. They wanted in the kingdom. So in this sermon, Jesus is going to denounce their practice of legalism, expose their judgmental attitude, and show their teaching to be woefully wanting. And there was also in Jesus' day a group known as the Sadducees. You've heard of the Sadducees? Well, um, the Sadducees would be what we might call theologically liberal. They discounted most things that were supernatural. They tended to modify both the scriptures and the traditions to fit their own religious ideas that would be more comfortable for themselves. And so to the Sadducees, Jesus' sermon was a strong reminder that one need die to themselves and their own ways and to have a glad submission to God and His ways. And that genuine repentance will lead to the acceptance of doing things God's way, according to His Word. And there was another group in the Jews. Remember, it was to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Well, in that day, there was another group of this, that made up this Jewish group that he came to first. It was, they were known as the Essenes. These were the ascetics who believed that right religion meant separation from society. And it was these Essenes that led quiet lives in very remote desert places, such as uh, Qumran, which is on the northwest edge of the Dead Sea, from which we have gleaned the Qumran uh, scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount would call them not to find their acceptance with God by means of separation from the world and society as if separation from world and society was what was required to get into heaven. We're obviously called to be what? Separate. We're in the world. We're not of it. We're not partaking of the world's immoral practices and deeds. But for the Essenes, they just moved out into the desert regions thinking that just separation, if we just separate ourselves from those ungodly people and we just sit out here and we're really holy and we just hardly do anything but just copy scriptures, that's what God will find favorable and grant us entrance into his kingdom. And the Sermon on the Mount is going to let them know that it's something far greater than that which is on the outside, but they need to actually have an inner change of desires, an inner change from lust of worldly interest and desires And that comes only by means of a Savior, Jesus Christ Himself, their Messiah. And there was another group known as the Zealots within the Jewish community, a fanatical nationalistic group of Jews who thought that right religion centered in radical political activism. Ringing any bells? (laughs) Sound a little familiar? Uh, radical political activism. Now, they were a little bit more extreme than perhaps we even have in the likes of our country today. Um, They were so zealous that these individuals would look down on any of their fellow Jews who were unwilling to take up arms against Rome. What were they looking for? They were looking for a king to show up to do what? To take up arms and overthrow not only Rome, but overthrow all the Gentile nationalities that had been suppressing them for, well, let's say since the deportation to Babylon, 
or perhaps maybe from the deportation 722 from the Assyrians. They were anticipating a coming kingdom, so when John the Baptist started preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand, you can imagine, man, they started cocking and loading. Let's go get them, boys. They were zealous for this kingdom, but Jesus is going to let them know in this sermon that genuine repentance and following the ways of God is something far greater than nationalism and taking such kingdom by force. That genuine repentance at this time will lead to genuine worship and not revolution. The central thrust of Jesus' sermon to each of these groups and to all peoples for all times was that the way of His kingdom is first and above all a matter of the heart, of what's on the inside of man, his soul. Entrance into Messiah's kingdom is not a matter of right rituals, personal preference or philosophy, posture and piety, and especially not by means of radical political activism, but from a right attitude toward God and a right attitude towards others. And all of this begins when one's heart has been set right by means of God's free gift of salvation, which is by grace through faith, and that purely by and of the mercy of God. So to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus himself is going to give us some color contours of what said life truly looks like. Notice chapter 5, verse 1 with me. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, this crowd here that Jesus sees is the large crowd that was accustomed to following him. After all, they, he had been teaching in the synagogues, he had been preaching in other occasions, and it says that he was healing all the sick that came to them. We saw that in chapter 4 last week, verse 25. And so it says that large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So whenever we get to this, when it says Jesus saw the crowds, these are the crowds that Jesus saw. They were following after him. Obviously, they were following after him. His name and thus his fame was growing uh, dramatically. But on this particular day, Jesus, after seeing the crowds, as it says in verse 1, went up on a mountain, which again, some rightly understand to not think of it as a mountain like we think of the Rocky Mountains, but instead to think of it as as a nice scenic hillside there, which is on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. Kind of a nice sloping landscape, the Sermon on the Hillside or the Sermon on the Mount. And so in verse 1, Jesus, having perceived this large crowd continuing to follow him, finds an opportunity to move up on this mount to take his seat and to teach them from this place. But we also see here in verse 1, right here, that his disciples came to him. Now what's somewhat interesting with the idea that his disciples came to him indicates, it seems, that having traveled through the region of Galilee, these disciples, remember these are the ones that when Pastor Matt preached, he said, come, follow me, and what did they do? They, they dropped their nets, they left their father and dropped nets, the family business, and they completely walked away from everything that was familiar in their lives to follow after this man who is now preaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and that he was the king. He was the one that John the Baptist was saying was coming, the need for baptism of repentance. There he is. These men believed in this and dropped their nets, and we see here that they still believe the same. Still believing the same. Here, after some time of doing ministry in the Galilean region, he sees a large crowd following him, clamoring after him. He sits down to take his his place of of, um, instruction. And, And by the way, this sitting down right here on many of the commentaries that I read on this is uh, you, you see what I'm doing right now. I'm standing up. I, I'm standing and I'm exhorting through teaching and preaching. But in the Jewish context, when a rabbi was um, in a teaching motif, they would sit down, which was a 
signification that, that this teaching session, this preaching session that they were doing wasn't just a casual passing by kind of a thing. It was more of an official, established, the, this, the rabbi has taken his seat, he's, he's, he's at his, well, um, he's ex-cathedra, I'm sorry to say it that way. Jesus was sitting on his seat, that's why that term even ex-cathedra is even when you're, it's, when on the seat, somehow that lends authority, but, and that's taken from an Old Testament Eastern context from the rabbis. They would take a seat, which was a place of authority. Jesus here is here sitting down as the king who's come from heaven to establish his kingdom. He sits down in his place of authority, and he starts giving a sermon on what entrance into said sermon looked like. His disciples are still with him. How many times have you seen people start following Jesus and it doesn't take but maybe a week or a month or a year later and you start looking around and you say, where'd they go? They showed up, they were really on fire. Where'd they get? What happened? Where'd they go? They stopped following or, or they perhaps go for a long time but they fail to persevere to the end and they, they get a little bit older in life. This one, this one really hurts the heart because I guess I'm kind of starting to get to that age where I'm getting on a little bit older in life. But I've seen this happen so many times with my parents' friends. When I was the little kid, the young kid going to church, and they were all there doing all the church activities, and I know where they are now, and hardly any of them are active, active in local churches. It's like they just outgrew it somehow. It was really good and really important when they had little kids, needed to raise them in the church, got older, got disinterested with other things. The disciples came and they're still with him. And we're going to see three years later, even following his crucifixion, they're right there with him on the mount. They haven't gone anywhere and they don't go anywhere. And such is the case of all true disciples. When the spiritual eyes of your heart get opened, you don't leave Jesus. And any opportunity you have to sit at his feet and to learn from him and to glean from him, and to soak in his word, where are you at? You're going to find a way to get there. That's why I'm saying even on December 25th, when the world is celebrating and all kinds of glimmering, we're going to be right here sitting at the feet of King Jesus, opening the Word of God, saying, Speak life, O living Word. He has words of life. Amen? So I think I maybe just effectively maybe guilted all of you on being here on 25th December. Did I, did, did, was it effective? It wasn't intended to be that way, but I saw a few... I saw a few People kind of looking at each other like, hey, we might need to change our plans. <laughs> I don't know. Listen, you just do what you need to do. But I'm telling you, the disciples, when they come to Jesus, they sit at his feet. And I have a good feeling if you can't be here on that day, that doesn't mean that you're not interested in sitting at his feet. I didn't, I didn't mean it that way. So don't take it that way, that literally. <laughs> okay, I think I'm clear on that one. And then verse 2, chapter 5, 2, notice, he opened his mouth and began teaching them, saying. Now, I want to make a very simple observation. Very simple. There, there's nothing real complex in verse 2, right? You're thinking, Avery, how can you even... You should just read verse 2 and keep on moving. I mean, what are you going to say about verse 2? I want to make a simple observation. What do you see Jesus doing? He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying. The text says he opened his mouth. So many times I hear good-intended believers say things like, preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. And it's like a new form of subtle, I don't really have to open my mouth when I do evangelism. I can just let my light shine. You see my life? Watch my life. My life is shining like a flick. Listen, have you got your WWJD? What would Jesus do? Jesus would open, he opened his mouth when proclaiming truth, because without hearing the proclamation of the truth, I may see your life and think, man, Lon, you're a great guy, but I don't know why you're a great guy. I just think you're a great guy because you do really great things. Lon needs to open his mouth and tell me that Jesus Christ and the gospel is what changed his life to make him such a great guy. That's what I saw here. Um, it's the, ne the, nece <laughs> the necessity of... When we're being conformed into the image and likeness of Jesus, what did Jesus do? He opened His mouth when He proclaimed truth. Isn't that good? It's so simple. Oh, what was Jesus teaching His disciples to do? 
Chapter 4, Matt preached on it. Follow me and I will make you become... When you fish for men, you got to open your mouth. When you go fishing for, for people, you can't just walk up and say... Hmm. You with me, Matt? you got to open your mouth. And so Jesus here opens his mouth. I wanted to just wax on that briefly because um, when we get to opportunities to do the good work of evangelism, I want you to think of Matthew 5 to memorize this verse. He opened his mouth and began teaching them, saying, and when we open our mouths, what needs to come out is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we need to shoot it straight. We're not leaving out the need of repentance from sin and a turning from that and turning to Jesus. We need to cut it straight when we open our mouths, just like Jesus Him. Self did. Remember Paul from Romans 10? How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without somebody opening their mouth? How will they preach? It doesn't mean like what I'm doing right now. Unless they are sent. Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Church, we are gathered today. This is the gathering of the church. The church gathers on the Lord's day, but we scatter on this day too, don't we? We scatter and we go out into the world. And what do we do when we go out into the world? We have been, we have, where is it? Come on, right here, sent. We get sent out of this place, refreshed in the Word of God, refreshed by the Spirit of God that dwells within us, and we are sent every week out back out into the world. And how will they call on Him whom they have not believed unless they hear you opening your mouth and giving forth the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Amen? So live your life as though it's the only gospel somebody may see, but open that mouth and preach it, because without hearing, they will not how will they hear without a preacher? How beautiful are your feet? Let's be those every week we go out with beautiful feet and we are bringing the gospel of good things. And this is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Good things, blessedness, happiness in good things. Now notice verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This word right here, blessed, is obviously very key to this section. So when you look at your scripture, you see there in three, blessed are the poor in spirit, four, blessed are those who mourn, five, blessed are the gentle, six, blessed, seven. Blessedness is key to this section. So in understanding what's happening here, we look to Lou and Nida to get a somewhat of a working understanding of, of this word from the Greek of, of blessed. And it says there in Lou and Nida, the Greek lexicon, pertaining to being happy with the implication of enjoying favorable circumstances. Need I say more? When you preach the gospel to yourself, what do you perhaps maybe think are your favorable circumstances? <laughs> and how the joy of the Lord is always thus our strength. Right? Favorable circumstances. And it's so important to understand from a biblical Christian worldview that favorable circumstances do not always have to have reference to ease of times or times of plenty or abounding in wealth and health and that prosperity gospel. It's the soul, it's the inner part of man that's going to prosper forever and ever. And when the inner soul of man understands what they, what they possess in King Jesus, happy are they. Circumstances may be going to hell in a handbasket. Everything may be going bad, fast. But man, when you know you've got King Jesus, though the outer man may be weeping, the inner man is getting stronger and, and glorifying God day after day, saying, come soon, Lord Jesus, I'm ready to be with you. Because there's a blessed contentedness and happiness in the soul that nothing can take away. As a matter of fact, we see James articulating this in James 1.9. He says, but the brother of humble circumstances. What are these outward circumstances that the 12 tribes dispersed abroad? They've, they've, been, they've lost everything that they had, and now they're working for landowners. And we see in chapter 5, actually, verse 9, that some of them are even dying as a result of the horrendous conditions under which they're now laboring. 
That brother of humble circumstances is to what? Glory in his high position. And where is his high position found, church? In no other place than in an abiding relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You may have this morning the most humble of circumstances. You're not where you thought you would be at this time in your career. You're not making the money that you think you need to to do this or that or the other. You don't have the, the material goods that you were kind of wishing or longing for. Learn to let those goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they will kill. But God preserves our inner soul and will resurrect these bodies one day still. And we will be with Him in what? The kingdom of heaven forever and ever. Now don't misunderstand me one inch right here. Humble circumstances are tough. They're tough. I've got a young man right here going through humble circumstances right now. Senior year. Is there, is, there, is there ever a greater year than senior year? Man, it's like the glory of young adulthood, senior year. Blows his ACL a second time, surgery passed this past week on Monday. All the sports for this young man that loves sports, gone. Humble circumstances can be extremely difficult and hard and painful and you have to wrestle with God, right? And in the process of wrestling with God, the process of preaching the gospel to yourself over and over, you realize that you you have a glory that's so far greater than those things and you find them in your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so we can glory in our high position in, in the King, amen? We can. Do you get there instantly sometimes? No. But what do you do? You keep fighting the good fight of faith. You keep taking thoughts captive to the obedience of Jesus. You will yourself to knowing the right thing and the good thing through God's Word. And you will the sword of the Spirit. And you fight that good fight of faith. And thus you live glorying in said high positions. Paul says it this way in Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time His circumstances weren't the best, not even close. But they're not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Again, simple contrast and comparison. Things in Paul's life were probably extremely duressful, stressful. You know, stress is kind of like the new uh, trigger word of our our generation. Or and anxiety. These are like easy trigger words, and, th- and thus we got to accommodate everything around these things. Listen, you think the Apostle Paul had a little anxiety? Maybe. He just says, listen, but the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared with what? Knowing what I have in King Jesus and the glory that's going to be revealed to us in that time. Now, I've got one more passage I want to read to you. It's a little bit longer, but I want you to listen to what Peter says. And this is a, this is a significant passage from 1 Peter 1, 3 through 8 on this principle. And let me tell you, this is a principle. Where I'm waxing on this a little bit more today because we live here. In counseling over the last 20 years, I can't tell you how many people who love the Lord find themselves in their greatest difficulties and struggles and thinking wrongly about their circumstances and thus becoming angry at God because things didn't work out the way they wanted them to and instead there was suffering. I've seen people turn away from God because of these kinds of things. This is so important. Listen to what Peter says. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 8. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. That's some truth right there that we need to allow to settle into our hearts. We have been born again to a living hope. And when we preach the gospel to ourselves, when suffering touches our lives and you lose your senior year of sports or whatever it may be in your circumstance, you come back to the fact that we've been born again to a living hope, and I am not a citizen truly of this world. My citizenship is in heaven. You have to learn to think rightly to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, 
to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable. Think about these things. That's why I said we got to let this settle in. Sometimes we read past the script, we read through the scripture so quickly, we miss some very weighty truths that will be anchors for our soul in the dark of night. When, when suffering, circumstances like this, and when circumstances like this come into our lives, we have to be thinking clearly. An inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for who? For you, the child of God, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation, a deliverance, sozo, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been, have been distressed by various trials. This is, the, this is the theological truth that gets you through the night. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise. And this is what comes from you. It results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, listen to this, and though you have not seen Him, it's called living by faith, not sight. You have not seen Him, what do you do? You love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice, even now, with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That's some weighty truth, church. And these are truths that we have to have as anchors of our soul. The blessed life that Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor, blessed are the blessed. We have to have a clear understanding of what we truly possess in Jesus so that we can truly understand how blessed we are in the beloved. Amen? It's truly that simple. John MacArthur put it this way, to be blessed is not a superficial feeling of well-being based on circumstance, but a deep supernatural experience of contentedness based on the fact that one's life is right with God. Blessedness is based on objective reality realized in the miracle of transformation to a new and divine nature. And when we fail to view our lives through these theological lenses, the, the truth, the Word of God, it's when we lose a proper perspective of what we truly possess in Jesus, and thus we lose a sense of blessedness in the here and the now. We, we lose that blessed divine contentment that is ours in Christ Jesus. And it's so easy at that moment to find ourselves having wrong thoughts, I mean just so wrong, that perhaps God doesn't even love me the way He loves other believers. Because look at their life. Look at the things that they're doing. Or look at the things that X, Y, ad nauseum, ad infinitum, whatever it may be. If we can have such horrible thoughts that we must learn to take captive through obedience to Christ. For the simple fact, very simple fact, is that Jesus is whose? He's mine. Are you here this morning belonging to Christ? Is, is Jesus yours? Have you made that repentance? Is it, has it been a genuine repentance? Because you see the beloved now so differently that no matter what were to happen to your life, your life isn't, doesn't consist of the things that you may possess. Because you know that you've got the the pearl of great price, the treasure that was hidden in the field is yours in Christ Jesus, the gospel of grace. There's a saying, I forgot the guy's name, so forgive me, but he said it like this. I think it was uh, Titch Navidian or something like that. Is that wrong? What is it? That's close, thanks. Uh, he said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Isn't that great? If you got Jesus, you need nothing else to have everything. You got Jesus, you got everything. So let's make certain, church, that when you leave here this morning, there's not one person here this morning that doesn't have Jesus. 
Because when you leave this morning knowing that Jesus is yours, oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Listen, when you walk out there, your circumstances all start and start paling and fading in comparison to the marvelous glories of his infinite mercies and grace. And you know what you have the capacity to do then? You have a capacity then to what? To give of yourself to get your focus off self, and to serve others, to love God and to love others, the very thing that Sermon on the Mount is going to be articulating and teaching us how to do better. It's truly a beautiful thing. Notice in verse 3, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit again. Verse 3 again, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why did, why did Jesus say that this phrase, poor in spirit, and, and what does that particularly mean, poor in spirit? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? And if you notice, verse 3, it's, it's just so simply articulated. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice, Matthew doesn't elaborate on what it means to be poor in spirit. He just says poor in spirit. So, assumedly, I'm not certain, but perhaps Jesus didn't feel the need to overly explain what it means to be poor in spirit. The assumption being that those listening that day probably would have a good understanding of what it meant to be poor in spirit. And so Jesus didn't need to preach and say, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now let me give you another 30-minute diatribe on what it actually means to be poor and then to be poor in spirit and what it means to have a spirit and to be poor while you're in the spirit. Or Do we kind of intuitively understand what it means to be poor in spirit? Maybe not. That's good because I brought Lou and Nida again. I'm just checking. I mean, if, if I would have got a really good answer, there would have been no need to go to Lou and Nida again, but I, I just I brought it along as backup just in case. So, um, poor in spirit, penumatai. This word's a little bit more difficult to say because it's got, a, it's got the, the, the um, yeah, these two right here. This Texas tongue has a, it's a, it gets a little thick on that, but poor in spirit. And right here, Lou and Nider are saying this, seeing this as an idiom. Literally, poor in spirit, pertaining to one who is humble with regard to his own capacities. Humble with regard to his own capacities. In the one New Testament occurrence, namely Matthew 5.3. So this phrase put together like this, this construction, poor in spirit, they're saying is uh, used just the one time here in the Matthew 5.3 passage. And they say this humility is in relationship to God. And down here they articulate that it's important to understand that because if one were to take two wooden literal of an interpretation, it might lead you to think that um, poor in spirit might likely mean lacking, poor, if you're poor in something, you're lacking it, in spirit, perhaps, so you're lacking in the Holy Spirit, or they say poor as in lacking, and then the human spirit, just lacking in ambition or lacking in drive, poor in spirit. They have a poor, their spirit's just kind of dull, they're just lacking in a drive in their spirit. And they're saying that that would be a, 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 a inaccurate, that'd be a serious, right here, a serious misunderstanding of poor in spirit. Lou and Nida say, in order to indicate clearly that this poverty or need is related in some way to spiritual realities, one may translate, happy are those who recognize their need of God. Happy are those who recognize their need of God. And so, in order to recognize their need of God, what are they doing? They're, it says right here, with regard to their own capacities, they recognize that when Jesus came preaching, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
in their own capacities, they didn't have what it, was, what it took to gain access or to gain entrance into said kingdom. And thus John the Baptist had to come, and he started preaching the need for repentance, a turning away from sin. Even the Pharisees and Sadducees who, who thought they had everything buttoned down perfectly, they're saying, no, if you're, Jesus says, if your righteousness doesn't exceed, surpass that, you will not get in. Meaning the Pharisees and Sadducees, as good as they may be on the outside, they're not getting in the kingdom of heaven. Our, our own capacities are limited. And so an individual who is poor in spirit recognizes the limitation of their own capacities to gain entrance into God's eternal kingdom, and thus they recognize their need for a Savior. They recognize their need for a holy God who can freely give and and an imputation of righteousness to them. Now, where perhaps, to the Jew first and to the Greek, where perhaps would the Jew have had a good understanding of said divine imputation of righteousness into the life of a child of God? Well, all they had to do was go back to their father Abraham. In Genesis 15, 6, we see that Abraham's belief, his faith in God, led him to walk in obedience to God, and it says there that that was credited or reckoned to him as righteousness. It was a free imputation by God into the life of Abraham as righteousness. Abraham did not have the capacities of his own. God had to give him that which he was lacking. And so when we become... Not when we become, but since we are poor in spirit. When we recognize that, when we recognize that we have a need for God, we are recognizing that our good deeds, our cleverness, our kindness, our even helping the old lady across the street occasionally, or, or cutting the neighbor's lawn, or giving generously to help lots of people, or whatever it may be, that all of those things, if, if that's what you're thinking is going to equal somehow getting into the kingdom of heaven, eh, it's not going to work. Your capacities are lacking. You need God. And so when you recognize that, what are you recognizing? You're recognizing an undoneness of your spirit, an undoneness of yourself, and thus the need for what? Jesus, the need for what? Genuine repentance, just like Jesus said. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And notice, notice what it says right here at the end of this. Those who recognize this, those, and, and those who recognize it, oh, by the way, are, are happy. Why are they happy? <laughs> They're happy because by mercy and grace, God granted them favor, and they now see of their complete undoneness and their lacking of capacity to get into the kingdom of heaven, and that it's by grace, and that He's the one that supplied that freely. That brings the, the, the greatest happiness. That brings the, the, the most unbelievable blessedness of, of all time. But notice, blessed are the poor in spirit for, what's the outcome for? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The very thing that John the Baptist came preaching, the very thing that Jesus came preaching, and saying that repentance is required. And the first coloring of the contour of what repentance looks like from the lips of Jesus with regard to its broader understanding deals with the very soul of man that was conceived in iniquity and born in sin. And no matter how much you try, no matter how good you may be, your capacities will be found lacking. You need a Savior. And when you recognize that, you're so happy and blessed and content in Him. You're willing to give everything away because Jesus plus nothing equals everything every day. We're going to pick up in verse 4 next week. Listen, if you're here this morning and you've never made Jesus king over your life, man, please don't leave today. Please don't leave today without giving consideration of the glories and the beauty of this good news, this gospel. Make Christ yours today. Repent of your sin and turn to Jesus exclusively.